Well, hello, welcome to Sound Engagement, a podcast devoted to engaging with our culture and community from a Christian worldview. I'm Brad Mills. I'm Peter Anderson. So if this is your first time listening, our podcast, um, we opened with an introduction several weeks ago uh, that really just gave a overview or a brief introduction to your hosts um, and then also a a summary of several topics that are hot button issues that may be things we want to address in the near future. Um, So we're looking forward to having more episodes, uh, especially some interviews that are coming up that that I'm excited about. Um, But in this episode, we wanted to do a book review. So I'm going to turn it over to to Peter. Yes, I know. I feel like we're already giving a memoir without um, necessarily jumping right in. So yeah, I'm pretty excited about this. so we're, t- we're today we're going to be talking about color of compromise. Color of compromise, as some of you might know, it's it's grown quite a bit in the New York Times list, especially after the George Floyd. A lot of books like this is, have grown quite a bit, and I imagine it's um, Brad. Isn't it like pretty high in the in church on the in the church website as well, or some? I mean, it's like Amazon. I think it's like number forty in Amazon bestsellers you know and race. What? Yeah, I, I will like say. Go ahead. Yeah, there are yeah. so many categories on Amazon now that I think you can find a category where it's number one um, oh. for just about any book. But yes, the, this book does have influence. In fact, I think he, it cracked the top 100 of all books on Amazon. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we're giving, yeah, The Color Compromise, which I read and uh, you had just, you, you read as well. We both read in the past few weeks and I started some of the video series as well. It's a book by Jamar Tisby. Jamar went to Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, before that, he went to Notre Dame. He was a principal for a few years, had a, still does have a, he has a huge heart for um, inner city African-Americans. And then he went to Reformed Theological, got a, got a, a master's of divinity degree and uh, started a, started a, um, thing called RAN, Reformed African American Network. Uh, but then he decided to uh, move that to a thing called a, a, a podcast slash website called Witness, The Witness. He decided to change the name a few years ago. Uh, I, I really felt like this time I would just be asking you some questions and then I would just add on since uh, you're coming at it more from a pastor, a pastoral point of view. And uh, I would just kind of add on some of our, we both have things that we really like, but also some real concerns uh, with what the book has to say. And one of the things that I noticed is that I, I feel like the book has really gained a huge amount of popularity because I think it's touching a nerve in the church. You and I both grew up, saw some real racism in Mississippi. I, you know, I, maybe we can both talk about that in this podcast. And, uh, and, you know, Jamar rightfully points out that the church has been pretty complicit. Uh, I think we, we, I don't think there's any argument there uh, in, in some of the racism. Uh, the theme of the book, really, though, Jamar starts it, starts it off as basically racism will never go away. And so Jamar kind of takes this somewhat defeatist attitude as if, you know, racism is never going to go away. It only adapts. And um, he, the church, I mean, the, he seems to be writing this book specifically to the white church, not necessarily to the black church. And the white church has, according to his argument, has done several things really since the foundation founding of our country uh, that have been complicit or that have compromised on race rather than standing up to some real racism or racial issues. Um, And I got the impression too, like Jamar takes this approach that the church should have known better that several chapters, he, he kind of takes an approach. Like if, you know, the church should have known better during the 
times of Jonathan Edwards. The church should have known better during Jim Crow. The church should have known better um, during the election of Donald Trump. Um, and then offers some real applications on how the church could basically stop its own complicity. So I, I just kind of gave a pretty, you know, pretty broad brushed overview of that. But I, I guess my first question, Brad, would you agree with that? I mean, would you agree with that, you know, with that theme? And I'd love to hear what you would add and anything that you would like to add about the book, um, about its main theme, main message. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the proposition itself is, is a compelling one. You know, um, to to suggest that there is that the church has been, and really remains complicit in racism. Um, I don't believe he makes a strong case for modern, the you know for the modern situation to suggest that the church has remained complicit. Um, I think it shows examples uh, throughout that really are you know, undeniably racist and, and contribute to a systemic problem. There's plenty of evidence that politicians were contributing to racism, um, and really using structural means to do it throughout history. Um, to the degree that those individual individuals spoke for the general public, I think we can readily admit that, that it was a dark spot in our nation's past and and there remains some consequences to that i think my question is not so much does systemic racism exist at all um but it's it's to what degree does it exist and to what degree can we yeah. do something about it through the means that are currently being recommended right that's that's where the the real challenge comes in and and i think for me the problem is even with the way um jamar jamar prints the history is there is a um, you know he, he's cherry I think he's cherry pick, cherry picking some of the evidence uh, to give an impression that it that in, instead of just being a, a you know like a dark spot it's it's pitch black at all times mm -hmm. and in every way and um, you know it, it, it he begins by acknowledging some progress that we have made. He is sort of like a nod in that direction that that there has been mm -hmm. some progress. And yet he spends the rest of the book ignoring anything that might suggest there was progress. Um, and there's, mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like I, you know, in the beginning, I, I kind of highlighted, highlighted that, that line about progress and, and was encouraged to, to think that, oh, maybe there's going to be some balance in the presentation. Mm -hmm. Just wasn't. Yeah. Uh, before, because I actually do want to get to some more of your critiques, but actually before you go there, I mean, because I, I love to just go in, especially with sometimes I think when people listen and they immediately hear negativity, they're like, oh, okay, sure. he's just going to say yeah. something negative. I mean, because there are definitely sections in that book too. So some of our listeners who haven't heard of Jamar, um, he's really, he's grown quite a bit over the past few years. I mean, I think he's he's right in, in, in 100% that the church has definitely not wanted to talk about it. The church has been late in some of its uh, some of its responses. So my first question, um, you know, well, my other question is like, what are let's talk about like some things that we both really liked. I mean, what what are some things that stuck out to you that you just were, um, yeah. yeah, that you were impressed by? I mean, definitely the the chapters that detailed um, lynching that talked about, I mean, it was, yeah. it was gut wrenching to read some of the examples that he gave. And, um, and I think even 
it's telling some of the evidence he gave about how the Confederate monuments were constructed decades after the Civil War and then again during the uh, Jim Crow era. You know, without going into why those are being torn down or removed now, uh, I think there's evidence that they were placed at a particular time for a purpose of of sort of, you know, they were suggesting something in the timing that they did it to say, okay, well, you know, uh, the war might be over, but but we're still going to have our uh, our thumb over you, and and so the I think some of that was um, was even enlightening for me. You know, like I, I mm. learned some things in those sections. I think the connection between the church and the KKK was informative. I, I mean, I, I knew yeah. some of that, but I think giving the exact examples that he gave and individuals mm. who, you know, were preaching on Sunday and then, and then, you know, joining these um, nighttime crusades, uh, it was, it was disturbing for sure to see yeah. that church's complicity in those things. I mean, mm-hmm. we could go on. I think there were views. Um, the fact that mm-hmm. he was saying that the KKK even was was not a marginal view at the time, right? It wasn't something right. that was just on the outskirts that, that we oftentimes think of today, of course. And so yeah. maybe you know, showing that it was mm-hmm. that these people may have been on the extreme, but they were, they were um, following a public outcry or, or at least a public opinion that yeah, um, yeah. Things consistent. Right, right. I mean, they, they kind of they the um the KKK was was especially up um in the south was basically riding the wave of what was already assumed. That's that's right. a yeah. I wanted to read. You know, there there are two quotes from Jamar's book that really stuck up to me. And this is I ple- I believe on page thirty where he says, "On the kidnapping of unsuspecting Africans and their separation from family." Um, he asks, oh, you nominal Christians might not an African ask you, learned you from this, your God. I think he's quoting um, Equanio, um, learned you not from this God who says unto you, do unto all men as you would men should do unto you. Black people immediately detected the hypocrisy of American style slavery. They knew the inconsistencies of the faith from the rank orders, the chains, the blood and the misery that accompanied their life of bondage. And instead of abandoning Christianity, though, black people went directly to the teachings of Jesus and challenged white people to demonstrate integrity. Uh, right there, I just I, I thought it was a fantastic quote. I really like that. I mean, you know, it was a uh, it, that's actually uh, basically that was Martin Luther King's passion. I mean, you know, that that he it, he wanted to share the same Bible and he wanted to say, OK, where where do you find these? Where do you find mm-hmm. these chapters that blacks can't intermarry with whites? Where do you find these chapters that we're called to be segregated? Where do you find these? I mean, he was going straight to the scriptures. Uh, I thought that was a really great uh, point he brings in. But then there's another there's another quote too, um, and I'll just just make these two quotes because uh, then we can kind of talk about things that we really liked. And yeah. he says it is the very reasonableness of the letter. He's talking about um, um, uh, Martin Luther King, his letter to the Birmingham Jail. Uh, reveals the underlying problem of complicity, complicity um, with racism. And I feel like this is basically Jamar's main, main theme right here, what I'm about to read. This letter from white Christian moderates illustrates the broader failure of the white church, a failure to recognize the daily dignity of American racism and the urgency the situation demanded. These clergymen uh, likely had good intentions, but they did not realize that the talking and negotiating for which they advocated had been attempted and had yielded little to no progress. 
They denounced the violence that direct action would supposedly incite, but they did little, relatively little. They did li- rel- relatively little about the countless lynchings, church bombings, and beatings black people across the nation suffered at the hands of segregationists. They were overly cautious when the circumstances demanded a measure of outrage and courageous confrontation. In general, this approach exemplifies how many Christian moderates during the civil rights movement responded promoted a gradual approach to resolving racial issues and minimizing the suffering and hardship of the marginalized who have been waiting centuries for justice. So I, I, I think right there, that's on page 137. I wanted to highlight that because that's that's basically the theme. That's that's what gives drives Jamar's energy the whole way, the whole book, the whole. So, yeah, what, what's your what's your take on that? And would you would you agree? I mean, did you you feel? Yeah, I'd love to well, hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I so I do think no doubt the church was was complicit and um and in many i think the again the case comes down to how complicit do they remain um i think in the past they fostered racism i mean definitely by refusing attendance to black people they required segregation where they did allow attendance and so there was just a uh i mean a very blatant um black it was black and white right the racism was just very apparent at that time and i think my my challenge has always been what when we make those examples more vague and try to say that we haven't made progress because of these you know right. that's where i start to kind of he he loses me a little bit so mm-hmm. i think they're you know they're truly disturbing examples in in churches um and just like you were saying i learned a lot of that while living in mississippi uh, for four mm-hmm. years seeing seeing racism firsthand and also hearing stories about various um examples of racism especially in smaller yeah. rural areas of mississippi but also in the in the larger churches so you know i think that was in, informative and something that i hadn't experienced in california uh, and mm. you know, at any of the churches i'd attended so i think that you know to to that that's not to say that racism was only a problem in the south i think and even mm. jamar makes that case in one of the chapters which i think is helpful yeah. But it definitely had a more widespread appeal and a longer life in the South, in my opinion. Mm. Um, and Tisby tends to yeah. find, well, so where where I question is is that he tends to find the worst examples in history mm. and then make them typical of the whole nation. So I mean, even in the in the case of the Dred Scott, you know, the Dred Scott case where he u- uses the opinion of Roger Tanney as mm. uh, it, let's just take that as an example. Roger Tanney's opinion um did not reflect the general public opinion at the time for the next i mean in fact it was met with large outcry with uh from from the public and and they it led to the civil war four years later so there was yeah yeah go ahead so yeah talked about maybe talk talk a little bit in context of that and i do want to I don't want to jump too much ahead, though, if that's okay, because oh, I do I want to still focus on like the good. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> we're going to get to the bad. <laughs> well, I'm just I'm just trying to say that the outcome yeah. of the Dred right. Scott case sure. showed systemic racism, but that particular mm. decision was 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 so widely condemned that I think you you know making that case um, right as being indicative of the general public is is too strong so I'll, I'll go back to some very positive things just positive things <laughs> um, he, he, he does provide several examples right um 
And I, if I can interrupt too, yeah, because one of the reasons why I think that's good that we take we spend like ten minutes on that, you know, not to, uh, is because I do think that the church, especially amongst Christians, we're you know they're they're, they're seeing something. Wait, you know, to it's to a, a critique. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just like I mean, they're seeing something. And I remember being in Mississippi. I mean, I'll, I don't mind telling the, the listeners this. I remember one time I was at a church. Uh, I won't name the town because you all probably know where it goes. But it, it was at a church in the Circuit Church, and I um, I went downstairs. I went to the restroom, and I saw a lovely uh, African American woman. And I said, "Why don't you come upstairs? Why don't you come up? And listen to my sermon." And she looked really nervous. She was like, oh, no, sir. I was like, you don't have to call me, sir. I think I'm I think I'm only a year older than you. <laughs> you know, trying to make her laugh, just trying to be lighthearted. And she looked kind of uncomfortable. And I, I even though I could tell it had nothing to do with me. And I because I asked her again and she was like, no, sir, I have to clean. I will go upstairs. And um, I talked to one of the elders. I was like, I really don't mind if I um, can't remember her name now, but I, I really don't mind if she comes up. You know, I'd love to love to, you know, I, you know, I really uh would love to give my sermon to, to, to anybody that's here. He got very, very uncomfortable. And he was just like, you know, we don't allow the children of Cain up in wow. our, in, uh, in our sanctuary. And um, I was just floored. I was floored. Yeah. And I just said, I just looked at him and I, I ripped up my sermon and I preached right from the book of Galatians, basically on, you know, racism, uh, the, wow. the judging people according to your, any kind of color or creed, and keeping people from the gospel. I mean, he was preventing her from hearing the gospel yeah. because she was a child of Cain. It was blatant. And then I went back and um, I met with um, I, I met with someone. Uh, again, I'm going to keep names out of it. And I sat down with this person and I told him about it. And he got mad at me for um, uh, re- quote rebuking an elder without uh, telling going before the presbytery. And I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. Like you know, so. You know, there, there's, there. I remember just feeling in Mississippi just this, this, this racism that you could cut with a knife. I remember um, interacting with uh, a student at at RTS, and um, I almost got in a fight with him. <laughs> I did. I almost fought him. Um, hey guys, I'm a therapist. Brad's the pastor, so I can get away with some of this stuff. Um, you know, so <laughs> it's okay yeah. if your therapist wants to fight. But um, he was this 22 year old kid, and he called one of the janitors boy. And I remember having to hold back. I did lay into him. I did. I yelled at the kid. And I just said, you never, ever, ever call a man that is twice your age boy in my presence again. I think I scared him, actually. And I, to this day, I have no regrets. I mm-hmm. kind of, the only regret is that I didn't hit him. Isn't that weird? <laughs> so, you know, so, no. But um, I remember just, I mean, all joking aside, I mean, I, this isn't really something to joke about. This, this is, there was some real real racism. And this was only 2006, 2000. Yeah. What was it? 2005, 2006. So, you know, so I, I, I think there's so, but at the same time, no, that's important now. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's some real complicity. I think he's spot on about some of this stuff. Um, so we saw that in a particular area for a particular right. time, I had mm-hmm. never seen or heard anything like that in growing up wow. where I did. So right. to, to paint mm-hmm. a broad brush is where, and again, I don't want to be <laughs> jump to the criticism, sure. but it, it is just right. the idea that you were, you're pinpointing something that is very much needed to mm-hmm. be addressed and it needed to be addressed from the leadership of the church and from, mm-hmm. you know, 
from anyone who could see it, right? I think you were right to to call it out. Um, so, like for instance, the, um, in just back to the book in particular, he gives an example mm-hmm. there that I thought was really powerful, and um, you know, I I'd, I'd heard the name before, but I hadn't done, uh, I didn't know the level of national outcry that the death of Emmett Till. Uh, that it led to, you know, the the decision of the mother to have an open casket um, after yes. he was brutally oh, murdered, right. and um, and just that image that was then, you know, uh, became a you know a symbol of of the systemic yeah. racism. I think that's that's powerful. Those are things that we should know about. We should know about Emmett Till. We should know. Yeah, it is. Right. Look on, go. Yeah. Sorry. No. Go. Please finish. Yeah. Well, I was just to say, we, those are the kinds of stories yeah. we need to know. We need to know our history. Right. We need to know that how how mm-hmm. dark and ugly and sinister it was, and and we need to sit with that and lament over it. Right. Join. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One another. Well, and, I, and that's why I'm spending some time here because it's just like yeah. I think the the cry to lament is really important. And uh, his chapter on lynching. Mm. was by far the most illuminating, the best, in my opinion, the best book in the chapter. It was worth the buy. Um, I read that to my wife. We just broke down in the sense mm. I did not know. I mean, some it's very, very graphic, graphic things that they did. I did not know the type of torture that they would do to make people just terrified, completely afraid. And so for that, I think it's worth the buy that people mm-hmm. know some of the stuff. Okay. So, so thank you for letting me slow down because <laughs> no, I, 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 I do I, one of my, one of, cause I want us, I just want, cause I know you, you were really challenged by the book too. And you really, because now I really want to get to some of our concerns. Cause I want us to, our listeners to know that we, we heard him. It's not like we have concerns as if we're getting defensive, like, cause I think the biggest critique is that people immediately start assuming maybe they're right about this once in a while that if you don't want to listen to it, then maybe you're just kind of comfortable with your racism. I think Jamar often will go there in some of his blogs. It's like the reason why you don't like what I'm saying is maybe you're, you're liking your privilege. You like your, you like where you are. And is there some truth to that? I think each individual can answer that. So I think what you and I are, I I, I could say for this for myself, I don't want to speak for you, but that's not where our concerns come from. Our concerns are, um, some of the recommendations that he makes, especially in the latter part, and as you said, because I would love to now see if you can open up a little bit about um, how he kind of tends to look at almost every single racist act as if it's continuing. And so it's like it's almost like the same as it was in is it, 2020 is the same as it was in 1944. Right. And you get that sense. So let's maybe talk a little bit about some problems that were that we saw in, in the book. What what are your main well, concerns? That, if you can I mean, go back to that. Yeah. And mm. your quote, I think, in the opening was that racism never goes away. It just adapts. And that's what he mm. really tries to hammer home in the end. And that was where I felt like he had the least leg to stand on. He had the least amount of evidence to really back it up. That was when he began to critique, you know, Billy Graham as a great example. Um, you know, so you have these individuals who you would never put in a category as being, um, you know, this this example of of racism, of deep rooted racism, and 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 to think that you could read a chapter on lynching and then mm-hmm. say, well, it's just adapted in the form of Billy Graham. Now you you go. Okay, that's unfair. I think. I think we've come, yeah. uh, we've gone a little too far to overstate 
our case. And, um, you know, I, like he even said, there should be one of the recommendations. And I think some of his recommendations were good, especially the ones at the end where he talked about raising awareness of history, as I've, I've already mentioned, we should know these things. Um, and mm. even really learning them from an as much of a, I guess, you know, going, you don't necessarily need the critique of the time. You just need the mm. evidence, right? Just portray it, lay it out without an, a bias. And it's already devastating in and of itself. Wow. Once you begin to critique it as well and, and to say why they did what they did, I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it starts to cloud the evidence that you're presenting and, and gives it a bias that, that may not be as helpful. Um, so Can I want to elaborate on that. Yeah. Elaborate on that a little bit more. I, that's a, that's fascinating. You're well, saying that, that last point. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a really good observation. Well, I just, yeah. I think, you know, I mean, I, I can read mm. the basic information on, on Wikipedia uh, about mm. an event and I can come away, you know, um, recognizing that there was a, a problem with, for instance, the Dred Scott case, like recognizing that this was the worst, possibly the worst decision that the Supreme Court's ever made in the history right. of our nation. Right. And, and that's one thing, but then I can also read it from, um, from Jamar Tisby's explanation and, and come away thinking that their decision forced the courts to be, um, to basically exclude blacks from being able to to have any voice in the court system, and that's continuing on today, right? Like all of a mm. sudden, made a really mm. radical shift from one really bad decision that's been corrected, and in fact, throughout history has been denounced. I mean, since 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 it was made, it's been denounced yeah. by by just about everyone. So I don't know. I, I just you know I I well I thank think you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you're onto I, something. Yeah. He mentioned something right. as well. One of the recommendations, he says, there should be efforts mm -hmm. to critically engage. This is a quote from the book. There should be efforts to critically engage rather than reflexively dismiss. And Christians mm -hmm. should consider that the best way to start is local. And I thought that's good. That's actually, but it's in the middle of a section where he's telling us to not reflexively dismiss Black Lives Matter and to consider that even starting a chapter of Black Lives Matter locally may be the best approach to dealing with systemic racism in your community. And I think, mm. man, to pull that quote out of context and you and you then have a pretty good argument for what he didn't do in the book, which was mm. critically engage uh, without reflexively dismissing everything. He does. Jamar does get us. You do get a sense that Jamar uh, redefines slavery. Um, not slavery, excuse me, racism. racism. In the middle of the book on page 160, he says this, that nowadays all the American church needs to do in terms of compromise is cooperate with already established and racially un unequal social systems. Hmm. Okay, so that's a very, very, very different definition. And actually what he's doing right there is that now he's basically, um, he's joining forces with Tananisha Coates and Kendi and kind of like some of the stuff that the new ref re, um, redefinition of slavery. Or excuse me, racism. And, you know, that is um, one thing that I'm seeing in common with what's going on with a lot of race discussions is that race discussions, and if you look at fourth wave feminism, almost look identical in the way they set up arguments. And fourth wave feminism and the new race uh, conversations, the way they're kind of setting up the arguments are everywhere that you see male patriarchy, everywhere mm -hmm. you see whiteness, 
same kind of sim. It's almost like mirror images, but one one is one is males, one is male patriarchy, the other one it was white males or even whites in general. And fourth wave feminism and the new race debates of whatever you want to call that, they're almost identical on all their objections. You know, you have people that are over here saying we live in this patriarchal society. May, you know, I, I have a lot, I'm in this, I'm in the therapy field. So I am always having other therapists say, what do we do with, um, what do I do with this client who is living under a patriarchal system where she still feels like she has to listen to her father, still get those types of emails, same to exact emails. Where do I go with this particular, with this particular person of color who is living under, who is afraid of the, of the white, um, uh, culture that's around them. What is that? You know, so so I will say that Jamar takes a huge philosophical shift on the way racism is defined today, which is radically different from the way racism was defined even 40 years ago. Martin Luther King defined racism as judging people based on their skin color and actually longed for the day to be colorblind. He actually says it in his, in his speech. He right. says, I long for the day that we will not be judged based on the color of our skin, but by our character. Right. Robin D'Angelo just recently writes a book for agility. If you actually are colorblind, you are racist. Kendi says that as well. Kendi Embram in his book, Anti-Racist, How to Be an Anti-Racist. If you are colorblind, you are part of the problem. And so what the, the one thing that's holding all of these groups together is Jumar's main quote, which is wherever you see compromise in terms of compromise, when it's already established in racially unequal social systems. So for him, if it's unequal, racism. If it's not equal, it's not a form of racism. So I, I will say it's almost like he's he makes some really solid arguments extremely well to the point of the book in the middle where it's almost impossible to really contradict him. And if you do, mm. you are kind of part of the problem. And um, Which I remember right into D'Angelo. Right, right, right into it. And I think, I, yeah, yeah. If you deny it, you're part of the problem. And, you know, it's uh, there's a joke I have as uh, a therapist joke. It's a Freudian therapist um, goes and uh, he sits down on his couch and the guy comes in and he says, you know, I've um, had a dream uh, that I uh, was basically I had a dream that I was making love to Angelina Jolie. And uh, the, the the therapist said, well, that means it's uh, you're having you just really want to have sex with your mother. And uh, the client says, no, I really don't want to have sex with my mother. I just I uh, they don't even look like my mother. And the therapist says, aha, reaction formation. You definitely want to have sex with your mother. And um, the, the point of the joke is falsification in the sense that there's no way for you ever to not be true. Um, mm -hmm. It's no excuse me ever to be false. And so Jamar um, somewhat jumps right into that a little bit in the sense yeah. like if you there's no possible way for you to contradict what he has to say in that way. So a little bit on that. I mean, did you? Yeah. yeah well, I mean, are, so yeah. What, think, what's your thought? Your thought? Oh, I think he he does without being as as blatant about it as those authors, Kindy Coates and D'Angelo, you know, I think he's a little more subtle in his approach, but the underlying evidence that he delivers is really based on the same kind of theories, I think, right? He encourages his readers to become anti-racist, just like Kindy does. Um, with Coates, he argues for reparations and encourages the church not to even wait for the government to provide them, but to actually do you know, reparations themselves in whatever form. So I know, I don't know if we're jumping around, but I, I think yeah, examples he gives. That's my next question. Line. 
yeah. right, with with these other authors, D'Angelo um, mm-hmm. and and other kind of critical race theory advocates. I think Tisby assumes that white people are are complicit in the sin of racism um, because they belong to a dominant people group, right? It's because they belong to a, a majority, they automatically are complicit in this. And so there's, there's, that's where the redefinition of, of racism um, is important because I think even beyond what, what you said early on in the book, he mentions two, two definitions for racism. One was prejudice plus power and also mm. a system of oppression. And that's neither of the definitions you find even during the civil rights movement, right? With Martin Luther King, mm. you don't find uh, the the power component. It's just prejudice towards another race. Or, um, and even the systemic and structural language is new. Um, uh, but I think as much as, you know, Tisby kind of tries to, to cut anyone off at the pass by anticipating their objections, in the first chapter, he kind of says, oh, you're, you know, you're going to call this Marxist uh, language. You're going to, you know, he gives mm-hmm. a whole list of things trying to basically cut off any critic. Um, you, you simply, uh, that doesn't change the fact that he's being influenced by people who aren't even using scriptural categories of oppression and victimization, right? They're using Marxist language, uh, you know, Kendi, Coates, and D'Angelo. They're, they're all mm-hmm. depending upon theories that are, it's, it's, it's Marxist rhetoric that classifies everyone as either oppress or oppressor. And uh, there's no getting out from that. You're, and, and in fact, the oppressor class is, is tied and linked directly to your race. Whether you were born in an impoverished situation or not, you are an oppressor if you're white. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest concerns, though, I have with Jamar. I mean, even so, so, so my biggest. So if, so if I could push back a little bit, so the yeah. one big problem might be okay. It comes from it comes from Marx, therefore it's untrue. Right. I'm kind of careful of saying that. I mean, because people can reverse it right back on me as well. Peter's a Christian, right. therefore what he's saying is untrue. I, that's an easy ad hominem. It's not so much that it's Marxist, therefore it's untrue. It's more that it's, and I wouldn't know if it's even comes from Marx as much as just a late postmodern um, from Foucault and Derrida, you know, probably more so from them. Now, if I can, if I could really address that though, because what he is doing is critical race theory. What's right. the problem with critical race theory? What's the problem with feminism theory? Well, th- let's just talk about science and let's talk about economics a little bit. I mean, going back on that quote, um, when he says that, you know, compromises corporate with already established and racially unequal social systems. Uh, okay, so let's let's kind of break that down. The number one people that are actually ma- um, Jamaicans, and this is some of the things that um, Thomas Sowell says, make a higher GDP than white Americans. Um, Asians make the highest GDP, according mm-hmm. to um, numerous reports. Right. Um, black women, black women actually make a higher GDP. Um, than uh, sig- significant more than white women in certain big cities. Hmm. His own quote breaks apart the minute you start looking at some economic problems here um, right. or some vari- variables that just don't necessarily fit into that. So the problem with, I think, some of the uh, defining everything according to power structure versus unpower, you know, oppressed versus oppressor is that it breaks down super easily um, in the sense that it's not philosophically tenable. I mean, I know that the many philosophy departments actually uh, kind of worked with that in the late 1960s 
And then they basically threw it away in about two or three years. Stephen Wright, not the comedian, <laughs> you could see that in his book on postmodernism. He makes that argument really well in the sense that that is a philosophy, what Foucault and Derrida were doing in 19, late 1960s, were basically thrown away. But the people that picked it up were the people in race studies, gender studies, and they said, okay, we could actually maybe work with this. Why did they throw it away? Well, they threw it away because it just wasn't a tenable system. It was self-contradictory. Um, the other thing about race studies and, and gender studies is that it's, so I, if I could bring a little bit of psychology in here, right. so it's just, um, is that you, many of the theories are theories that are not tested through basic psychological research like you're you're not going to necessarily have a control group versus an experimental group you're not going to have you may have a little bit of surveys here and there but you're not going to actually have um have an experimental uh, uh scientific review on proving some of the ideological factors that he's making now why is that important well it's extremely important because if it can't even pass your basic psychology exam examination or your social psychological examination what are we talking about? And so, so if you start applying logic or if you start applying reason, that is actually going to be seen as you're living according to your white hmm. mindset. Now, you may think I'm overblowing this. Absolutely not. Kendi um, Imbram just has made the, the same exact argument in his recent article in The Atlantic that thinking logically about stuff using scientific methods is actually a form of white thinking. And so what Jamar is doing here, he's giving right into this new wave, I call it new wave racism, <laughs> just like new wave feminism, in the sense that the whole structure is flawed, the whole, whole thing. And so, you know, it, you cannot get better unless all of America is basically burned down and right. restarted back over again, because what the, 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 the main ph philosophical view that's coming from this mindset is I have to hold, burn the whole thing down and start all the way over. And I think this gives right into cancel culture and Jamar actually kind of, he has some, I, I, I think he has some positive things to say about cancel culture. I think he's for it. Um, I don't think that's me reading into it. He actually says, don't go to speakers. Don't see speakers that you may think are giving into the system. Well, how does that look like? Does that mean that I can't go see Thomas Sowell because he may disagree with Jamar's definition of racism because he's, quote, you know, that he's not giving into the same system? Um, that's the argument that Tanisha Coates makes. The yeah. minute that Kanye West, for example, started voting for Trump, Tanisha Coates writes in The Atlantic, Kanye West is not black in my eyes. Hmm. Um, you know, he's no longer black. Um, so this is some of the language that's being propagated out there. Uh, they're, they're, uh, you know, so if you don't agree with my philosophical view, even though it can't pass logic, it can't pass any, pass any kind of um, philosophical examination or psychological exam or social psychological examination, I have to, I have to adapt your view, even though I read other black authors that are telling me totally different things on everything that you're saying, if I don't necessarily give into your propagation, your proposition, I am somehow a racist. This right. is my, yeah. So, I mean, I just wanted to, <laughs> I'm just adding here. <laughs> like the, no, that's good. I mean, that's that's attention here because I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't. If I think on my own and quote black authors, I'm under a white system. If I'm quoting him, my only obligation is 
to what, you know, apologize, I suppose. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, I, I mean, I, I think that's helpful to, to recognize. I, I, I'm not sure I would need to, to do more research, um, on the, you know, read some of the guys that you've read to, to say that this is more Foucault or Derrida instead of Marxist. I think from what I've seen, it's, it's, um, it's pretty easily linked to Marxist, Marxist rhetoric. Now, I don't want to just say that that immediately dismisses the subject, but for like one guy um, that I've I've learned from and appreciated on this, because I, there's a point in the book, and I uh, this is related to this redefinition of kind of racism. Um, you know, there there's this recommendation to really study black theology. Um, which has been historically linked to black liberation theology. And there's nothing mm. negative in the book about black li- liberation theology. Um, and so he quotes mm. James Cone um, as an example in the book and, and just says, Jamar that, does. yeah, Jamar, Jamar quotes. Jim, yeah. Okay. Quotes, yes, we're still talking about Jamar. Cone, but, and, yeah, and he says I nothing critical, right. About the, about uh, mm. James Cone's beliefs. And so I, yeah. I actually was, was reading, um, Dr. Anthony Bradley on the subject, who who just provides an an excellent critique of, of Black liberation theology in in this article that he wrote for Acton.org, and this is his conclusion at you know which the whole article is excellent, worth reading, um, and he mm. ended up writing a book a few years later that essentially used that article as an outline for the book and just elaborates further on black liberation theology. But his conclusion in the article is this, black liberation theology originally intended to help the black community may have actually hurt many blacks by promoting racial tension, victimology, and Marxism, which ultimately leads to more oppression. As the failed war on poverty was exposed, Mm. Uh, the best way to keep the blacks perpetually enslaved to government as daddy in quotes, is to preach victimology Marxism and to seduce blacks into thinking that upward mobility is someone else's responsibility in a free society. Now, you can't uh, actually, really- just, can I, Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Can actually, if it's okay if I interrupt, because I want to, if because let's read what Jamar says about that. Let's face with the contradiction if it's okay. That's yeah. an awesome quote. Awesome, awesome quote. So Jamar on page 175 says- Accountable individualism means that individuals exist independent of structures and institutions, have free will, and are individually accountable for their own actions. This belief promotes skepticism toward the idea that social systems and structures profoundly shape the actions of individuals. The white evangelical understanding of individualism has this effect. So he's placing white individualism. Um, he's he's play, blaming this on white evangelicalism. What um, what this author, anyway, let me keep going. Has this effect as it tends to reduce the importance of communities and institutions in shaping the ways people think and behave. Another belief in the cultural toolkit is relationalism, a strong emphasis on interpersonal relationships. Um, let me just kind of keep going. So basically in this, in other words, systems, structures, and policies are not to blame for the problems in America and said that problems come from harmful choices individuals. So I, the, the reason why I thank you for letting me interrupt is because that completely contradicts what Bradley just says. So here right. you have Jamar and Bradley. All right. So what, yeah, go ahead and say, yeah, we, well, I wanted to just, bring that in because that's, so, that, that's the tension. Yeah. And the <laughs> idea is that there, that this represents white evangelicalism. Well, Anthony Bradley's black and he is, 
He is promoting this, you know, he is recognizing Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. problems with black liberation theology. And I think, I think you have got to read more broadly, more critically than, than ultimately Tisby is recommending here. I think if you just stay at a surface level understanding of some of this stuff, then what you've done is you've favored morality at the cost of theology. And, mm. and it's going to wow. do more harm to the church, right, than good. So we mm. can, we cannot develop a God-honoring response to racism by merely taking, you know, what amounts to very godless ideology and wrapping it up in kind of Christian language. So pastorally, how would you differ for racism? So my question would be, so if I believe what Jamar is saying is true, Mm-hmm. And I'm, I've been thinking a lot about all these riots. What gets me to the point that I'm a peaceful person that all of a sudden I want to physically harm? I was talking to my wife about this. What what would have to happen if I want to physically harm another white person that's on college campus that I want to physically and if um, I want to do harm to this person? And if uh, I would encourage the listeners to watch the episode on Evergreen State by Brett Weinstein, mm. as well as the recent thing on Yale University on Halloween costumes. Brett Weinstein, though, on Evergreen State, writes an email, not going to leave college campus because I'm white. He was mm. he was told, go leave college campus because um, all the white people, you guys need to leave. Brett Weinstein's Jewish. His father was in the Holocaust. He said, hell no. <laughs> you yeah. guys can do what you want to do. I am not doing that. The man was brutally at he, he was almost brutally attacked several times. Um, yeah. Cops weren't there. You all could watch the episode. I encourage you to do that. And I was talking to my wife. I was like, what would, ha- what would I have to believe in order for me to be along with those students yelling at Brent Weinstein? I think I would have to believe that this person is complicit. This person is propagating racism. Um, Jamar on page 184 says the only wrong action is inaction. I would 100% have to believe that you are doing harm by believing in this capitalistic system. You, Brad Mills, are doing harm by telling me that I am individually responsible. You're hurting black lives when you're saying that. If I honestly believe, so that's why I brought it, that's why I brought up that story where I couldn't, I almost wanted to hit that kid. Mm. (laughs) There was actually violence in me when I saw race, real racism. And I had to like withhold it back. Mm. Wow. So I could actually do harm if I honestly see you as the enemy. Now, I just quoted Jamar's quote. You just quoted Bradley's quote. Both of these are are brothers in Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. How in the world do we mend the two together if I see you as a pure enemy? And this is, I think this is, without sounding dramatic here, I think this is the real harm in Jamar's book. Hmm. Because you are the enemy Hmm. and you're complicit. And if it's true that the only wrong action is inaction, what excuse do you have to make? And your Bradley's quote, it's immediately going to be deemed, it's just part of the white power. So, so as a pastor, how do you do that? How do you deal with that? Yeah. Anyway. Well, I think, I mean, this goes, goes back. I want to bring in a third quote (laughs) because uh, Thomas Thomas Sowell has an, Mm. has an excellent quote where he says, it is self-destructive for any society to create a situation where a baby who is born into the world today automatically has pre-existing grievances against another baby born at the same time because of what their ancestors did centuries ago. And I think the, the point is we are being born into 
um, a situation where we're taught from K through university that there are grievances against one another uh, and that there the that one race is complicit in that racism towards another that racism mm. is possible from one one race to a, uh, as long as that race doesn't remain in, or doesn't have any power which i think is also inconsistent with reality today um and so i think mm. my um, i just i'm just pointing out the fact that like yeah. we have been fed and i grew up in the public school system we've been fed a a um a theory of kind of culture that is that that views um whiteness as the problem right and and that yeah. defines whiteness in such a way that it it actually isn't attached to race it's attached to thinking and so if you're a black man who thinks like that you actually are are suffering from wh whiteness as well right i mean so anthony yeah. bradley in this case could could mm. be condemned in that way and now i don't think anthony bradley can be because he you can't put him in a box and yeah, uh, there's just as much um, things that he says that that I would have would would take issue with as as he has that I'm really excited about. So I mean, I think I overall I think he's a trustworthy source on this because because he's not just preaching to the choir. He's not just saying the yeah. same thing that everyone expects him to say as a black conservative because he's not even in that category. But the struggle is, yeah, and the struggle is like you and I are white and we're probably already, you know, canceled for that. Oh, for, for that, sure. You know, yeah. I mean, you're, what do you know? So, but that's the problem though. Like you and I, we're not black and yet we're reading black authors and they strongly disagree. Who do we believe? You know, where do we go? And so could it be that the problem is maybe not so much Jamar versus this person, but maybe these are philosophies that we're seeing in our world that are setting up binary choices. And this is the is what Jonathan Haidt says. Hmm. The, the media, when you put things in binaries, you're not at a good place. You know, cognitive behavioral therapy tells us don't catastrophize things. When you put things in binaries and there are no grays, you're going to logically fall into bad. You're going to logically fall into bad places, or hmm. you're, you know, and and so it's it's a cognitive dissonance, I suppose, that's going on in, in your brain if you hear things that have evidence, like Thomas Sowell has evidence after evidence after evidence about right. all these things that don't necessarily coincide with what Jamar is saying. Does that mean I hijack the evidence because it's white and to believe what Jamar is saying? It's, you well, know, I, yeah. I, right. I, just to, to, to huh. bring it back to the idea of, um, you know, the theological position here, I think I've heard right. at least from others when I, when I ask some of these kinds of questions or even, mm. and it's not that I'm convinced that there is no such thing as systemic racism. I've said that already, right? I'm not, con right. I'm just saying, I think it's valid to question where it exists and to what degree it exists. Because I think yeah. to just say that the whole system is corrupt, the whole, th then that's where you get into, we got to burn it all down and just start over. Um, but I, you know, I've heard people say, well, look, um, original sin basically argues that we're guilty of, uh, you know, we should, we should not have a problem accepting guilt that we did not necessarily contribute to in any direct way. Right. So they say original sin, look, you, you should have no problem seeing this argument of white privilege or, you know, white fragility in the same way. But I, I think that line actually breaks down what Tisby is trying to, to say and some of these other authors, because original sin implicates everyone equally. Right. We are all guilty, not just those who hold the power. 
but everyone is Amen. guilty mm. and we all contribute mm. to our own uh, with our own sin we all have particular sins of our own that contribute to that original sin as evidence of the original sin right so yeah. it's like yeah. it's saying that yeah. you can still point to specific things it's not a vague um definition of sin that now becomes well you're just guilty because of uh your skin color and I, and i think you know so systemic racism Amen. In wow, that's good. The, the past, that's, that's, the, that's the highlight of the of the podcast. This that was. Uh, awesome. yeah, <laughs> Keep going, please. Right. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I just think I, I do want to jump in for a sec. Yeah, oh. but go ahead, finish that thought. Yeah, please. Well, I just yeah. I think we mm. we should not assume mm. the present system is rigged without showing without showing present evidence. You need to, have, and that's what what you're saying, yeah. soul. Like you've yeah. got to be able to show the data. And some people will say yes, but I've got a story. I, I've listened to my friend, and and they've said it. And and so yes, those are helpful. Those anecdotal anecdotal is evidence is helpful, but you've got to go beyond that as well if you want a big picture. Well, right? yeah, and I and I I see that as a clinician too. You know, yeah. I mean, I I going back to your earlier point about progress. Um, you know, I, I had a client um, years ago. I'm trying to protect HIPAA on our podcast. <laughs> it's a show years ago in totally different states. You know, um, uh, she was um, really worried about all the racism that was around her hmm. and never felt, just didn't feel like it was ever getting better. And I just listened to her and I, I comforted her and I just, I didn't say anything, you know, at that time, didn't feel like it needed to. And the next session, she, her anxiety was like eight times worse. And actually used a little bit of CBT on her. I said, well, you know, I think one thing that the far left, far right gets wrong is that they deny racism. And I think they're just wrong. And I think the the problem that the other side, the other side too, is that the problem with some, some of the far left stuff that I'm reading is that they also deny that there's been any progress. And I think both are wrong because there's, there, there is still racism. But we are seeing significant, significantly less racism that we've ever seen before yeah. and something to that effect. And I just kind of told her about that and gave her a little bit of things to read. And her anxiety was gone by mm -hmm. the end of the session. Totally gone. Are we doing, are we helping young black kids by saying, hey, white cops want to kill you? Right. How are, and who are you saying that to? You better be really careful who you're saying that to. It's a 17, because here's the one thing. Contempt is the number one reason why divorces occur. Mm. Bitterness, and it's is another another reason as well. It's a human problem. What you're saying, you know, it has it's more than just power versus not power. It's 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 the bitterness of the human heart, which is why we all need the gospel. Yeah, um, mm. we have to. And this is Martin Luther King. That's why he was able to reach so many people. He never let the black race off. He always rebuked. He always said, "Look." You need to improve some things. Thomas Sowell says the same thing. We, you, you guys, we need help here. I'm not in the position to sit there and say, you need to do this. You need, I'm not, that's, but they're, right. what they're saying is it's the gospel messages that in the sense that you are just as, you, you are just as capable of the most evil acts, which is why you're that much more in need of a savior as much yeah. as I am. And if we don't start there, we we break things up into categories. We do exactly what the first Corinthians did. We break things up according to, you know, you're according to Paul, you're according to Paulus, you're according to this person, you're according to me. And I, I that's that's division. So I think my la you know, my last question, in your opinion, I mean, does Jamar book lead to the gospel? 
Because this mm-hmm. is really what this podcast is about. We're about the gospel. Yeah. We're not just here to just like cause division here. We want debate. Our podcast was started because we love debate. We love conversations. We love complexity. You and I want to be challenged. You yeah. know, but is this ultimately it has to start there. So what is your what's your take on that? And yeah. I think you. Yeah. Well, I, th- I mean, I, I'm thankful that that uh, we will kind of close out with this idea because I think the mm-hmm. it's the most important uh, question. And and I'll and I'll end with a positive and a negative. All right. So there was a probably my favorite quote from from the book. Uh, it comes fairly early on. I don't I don't have the page number written down, but it's it's if this were permeated throughout the book, if this idea was kind of what drove and motivated him throughout the book, then I mm. think it would have been a radically different and much more helpful book. Here's what he says. Christians have been mandated. This is Jamar Tisby. Christians mm. have been mandated to pray that the racial and ethnic unity of the church would be manifest, even if imperfectly in the present. Christ himself brought down the dividing wall of hostility that separated humanity from one another and from God, Ephesians 2.14. Indeed, reconciliation across racial and ethnic lines is not something Christians must achieve, but a reality we must receive. On the cross, when Christ said, it is finished, he meant it, John 19.30. If peace has been achieved between God and human beings, surely he can, we can have a greater peace between people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. So you want to link the gospel to the idea of racial reconciliation? He does a brilliant job right there of doing mm-hmm. so. And I would say it's a, that was an, an excellent example of, of what we need to be preaching. But, the, but I don't get that from the rest of the book. In fact, I, I, I struggle to find very much about the book that is explicitly Christian in it, hmm. um, you know, say for that quote. I mean, if it, it, if it's true that the gospel is about, a, first, we're all under sin. Mm-hmm. We all need a savior and sin continues to exist in this world. And if anybody says that he does not have sin, does not know Christ. And so mm-hmm. there's an element, I like what you said about the reconciliation. I mean, I'm okay looking at points where there is true racism. Let's let's address it because right. as it says in First John, anyone who says that there is no sin, He's, he denies, he denies the Christ, he denies Jesus. And so it is, there is true, it is true that if you look at something evil and if you don't, if you don't, you know, if it doesn't break your heart, if you just pass it by, right. um, you are, you're denying Jesus. And yet at the same time, if you are slandering your brother and you say something that's not true about your brother, you're also you know, that's, that's, as first John says, it's, it's a form of murder. If you hate your brother, right. a form of hatred is not representing your brother. And so I think that's my biggest concern is that, you know, putting kind of what we were talking about earlier about dividing these di- dividing people who are, you know, Anthony Bradley, Thomas Sowell, Coleman Hughes, they're not even Christians per se, but they're telling us things that are just radically different. And that maybe racism looks very, very different today than it did in the 1940s. We have to be careful looking at other people that don't necessarily agree the way we do, that they're somehow complicit in doing evil. Mm-hmm. That is immediately polarizing. It's setting up a significant amount of division that's already occurring in the church. 
Jamar does blame Donald Trump and his election on complicit white evangelicals. The reason why he left ran and went over to witness is because he thought that was a huge betrayal. I could say right now that has nothing to do with racism for a majority of people that voted for Donald Trump. Not to get too political here. Many, many, many people could not vote for Hillary because of the abortion issue. Many people could not vote for her because they did not want socialism light. And many people were holding their nose, disgusted with themselves. I knew one guy, he threw up afterwards because he felt he he just like couldn't stand that he had to vote for the guy. Hmm. But he just didn't want the left to take over. Now, listen, not to get political. Fucking back up. We have to be careful of just slandering people as complicit racists, right? When they are just trying to make sense of this very complex world, like how do I not have a woman that wants, you know, have somebody in office that wants to support abortion coming out of, which is basically third trimester abortion, yeah. babies coming out of the womb. How do I not support that with all my consciousness? I cannot support that. So therefore, I'm going to have to vote for this person. It's a very, very, dis- such a disturbing um, well, binary that many Christians are in. It's not fun to have that. And so just to write them all off right. as complicitors is just a total overreach. And I really want to call them out for that because that's that's just, so going back on the gospel, I think the gospel has to start with equality and then also love. <laughs> and one way we love is representing them fairly right. and yeah. So I, yeah, I just wanted to no, and I, share I, that a little bit. I, I think that's, yeah. that's a great way to, mm. uh, to summarize mm. it. I mean, there's- and we, I guess we should end there. Just like, we need Jesus guys. We do. And ladies, <laughs> and yeah. we, we need to argue. And that's why we started this podcast. We want to argue. We want to debate. We want to have conversations. We want to have, we want to be challenged, but this isn't, in my opinion, um, maybe it's starting the conversation. There's some real, I would still encourage people to read the actual book, make your own. You could strongly disagree with some of the stuff that Brad and I are saying, Yeah. but you know, we just, that's, that's, that's our heart. You know, it is important to end on the gospel and the gospel Amen. should be the answer, right? The gospel should be mm. what brings us together. And so we, we should long for the day when every tribe, tongue and language is gathered around, you know, uh, the throne of, of God in, in mm. eternity, right? In the new heaven and new earth where where we are no longer hindered by racial uh, disparities and tra- challenges. We're all going to be rejoicing in the diversity that we that we share. Right. And I just I think right. that's a beautiful picture, something to long for and something to pray for, as he as he had said earlier in the book. So I I do mm. pray that he 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 returns to that kind of view. Thank you for listening to Sound Engagement. Uh, we'll end there. See y'all next time. <laughs>